Our text for this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, continuing our study in Paul's first epistle to the Corinthian church. Hear now God's holy word. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have perished asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we find it an enormous privilege and blessing to hear you speak to us through your word. You have not shut us uh, up against uh, your will. You haven't closed our ears. You haven't, uh, you, you haven't closed your mouth when it comes to revealing yourself to us. You have revealed yourself and you have shown us through your son, your mercy, your glory, your majesty. And so today, as we reflect on this word that you've revealed to us, further open our ears and open our hearts and open us up to receive these wonderful things out of your word. And we pray that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Almost every child has heard, at some point in their life, they've heard a parent or teacher ask this question. If everybody else jumped off a bridge, would you do it too? I think we've all heard that. It's somewhere in the parent's manual that you have to say that to your children somewhere. And it typically comes in response to something that a child wants to do that everybody else is doing. Everybody else is going to the dance. Everybody else is going to the mall on Saturday. Or it's something that everyone else has that, that you don't have. Everyone else has those shoes. Everyone else has that, that watch. Or, or getting caught up in some bad behavior that everyone else was doing. Uh, why did you ride your bike through the mud and get mud all over your clothes and, and, and get mud all over your bike? And why, why did you do that? Well, everyone else was doing it. And then the answer or the question and response is, if everyone else jumped off a bridge, would you do it too? And what the authority figure has in mind when they ask that question is the idea that you don't do something foolish just because everyone else is doing it. They want you to think for yourself. Don't, don't follow the herd into destruction. But then at some point in your life, say your late teenage years, you find that all of the societal momentum and all of the pressure shifts and, and it goes against independent thought and action. And suddenly there is, a, there is a hole that you're supposed to fit into. There is a form, there is a mold that, that you're supposed to, to match. Everyone is expecting you to behave exactly like everyone else. If you don't conform to certain expectations, people get confused or offended, whether it's a career path or an education path or how you dress or how you look. There, there is a, an expectation of conformity when you get older. And, and suddenly, everyone's jumping off the bridge, and we're all glad that you're doing it. We're all glad that you're conforming. 
See, at some point, we're supposed to move from this, this independent thought to herd mentality. If everyone else is doing it, it must be right. And so as adults, we all feel this pull toward acceptance and belonging. We don't want to be weird or non-conforming ordinarily. We are motivated often by the question, what will other people think? What will people think if they see this? What will people think if they, they hear that? And what, what, is, what, what is the guiding principle there is not what is right, but what will make me accepted? What will make me belong? How will I, how will I fit in? The problem with this is that we're, we're looking for acceptance and we're looking for respect among all the wrong people. What our society has determined is acceptable and respectable behavior and respectable belief, this, this has an immense gravitational pull. Even if their standard is constantly evolving, even if that standard has no basis in reality, it has no authoritative foundation. Still, there is this pull from the people you work with and the people on your street and the people in your family, there's this pull to conform to the group think, whatever that is. And to be sure, societally, our, our theology, our morals, our logic um, is driving everyone right off the bridge. And the question is, why don't you, why don't you jump off too? Because you hold some beliefs, just the fact that you're in worship on the Lord's day, in the fact that you're in worship in a place like this, in a church like this, uh, the, the fact that, that you are here means that you hold some beliefs that aren't respectable anymore. They aren't popular. And, and, and we're, we're led to believe that we're in a small radical minority if we have a biblical view of marriage or creation or law or economics or any number of things that we hold and believe that haven't been formed by our gut, that haven't been formed by the progressive agenda. We haven't gotten to these ideas by following evolutionary science, but we come to our conclusion by an understanding of God's word. And the fact that you hold on to these things makes you kind of weird. And, and, and there are things that you believe and there are things that you hold to that you can't talk about in line at, you know, Brookshire's. Uh, uh, it, what did I say? Harris Teeter. That was the old grocery store, the last place we lived. I'm sorry. There are things that I don't know the names of grocery stores. My, my wife tells me go to the drugstore, and I like I don't Walgreens. I, what is it? I don't, and Dollar General. Is this the place? I don't know. I, so forgive me. Uh, there are things that you just can't talk about in line at the post office, right? There are things that um, you uh, you you can't um, that that if you if you speak out loud you're going to be very weird. So keep it to yourself. If you don't want any trouble at work, if you want to have the right friends, you keep it to yourself. Now, this is not a new problem. Throughout this letter to the Corinthian church, Paul has been fighting against the tendency of these Christians to desire respectability among all the wrong people, to go along with the crowd. Um, and and over, the, over time, this has influenced these Christians to the point that they're d doubting and denying not only Paul's authority to preach to them, not only his apostolic office, but they've started to deny basic tenets of the Christian faith because none of the cool people, none of their neighbors, none of the people they work with believe in the resurrection of the, de the dead. These Christians are under pressure to conform to 
to that serious error, to deny the resurrection. They're pressured to be normal. They're pressured to be just like the rest of society. And the problem with that, the problem with denying the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the problem with denying that is that the resurrection is not a take it or leave it doctrine in the Christian faith. It is the core of the Christian faith. Either Jesus was raised bodily from the grave after being crucified and buried. Either Jesus came bodily out of the tomb or the entire Christian faith is a lie. The entire Christian story is a lie. You see, you can't pick out the parts that you find are unsavory. These, these bits about death and resurrection, you can't pick those out and keep the rest of it in hopes that you will somehow become more sophisticated or, or gain the approval of elite friends. It's all or nothing. And as Paul has corrected them on a few occasions throughout this letter, the conformity that they want to, ought to be striving for is a conformity to the faith and doctrines and practices of the rest of the churches. They're doing some really weird things here in, uh, in Corinth, unusual, irregular things uh, that none of the other churches are doing, not the least of which is that some of them are starting to doubt the gospel itself. You see, conformity is not the issue. The issue is not whether or not you, you are going to conform to something. The question is, to what are you conforming? Paul wants them to conform to the doctrine and practice of the rest of the churches. That's the kind of conformity we want. We want you to be conformed to Christ and they're being conformed to the culture instead. So as we continue this week through Paul's explanation of why the resurrection of Jesus is such a pivotal event, why it's so necessary for our salvation and faith, we take a couple of more steps in his, in his argument. Last week, we saw him outline and defend the historicity of the resurrection, how it was viewed by many witnesses, it wasn't some private event, how the gospel writers wrote about it, how the Old Testament spoke of it in the future tense, how Jesus himself spoke of his resurrection. That, that was last week. In this next section, we'll see him continue from that point and emphasize the fact that if the resurrection is untrue, if it didn't happen, there is nothing left for us. There is nothing, no deliverance from sin, no comfort in suffering, no rescue from death, and nothing to look forward to in the future if the resurrection is false. So he begins in verse 12, and we'll read, and by the way, I've broken 1 Corinthians 15 into three sections. We're just looking at the middle part today. We'll finish it next week. So verse 12, <clears throat> he begins, now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And it's like he's scratching his head or pulling out his hair. It says, against all this evidence that we've given you and the difference in your life that you have experienced having believed in the risen Christ, how do you say that there's no resurrection? How do you say that there's no possibility of physical life after death? Well, Remember where we are, we're in a Greek city, and the prevailing Greek philosophy was built on Gnosticism, the idea that everything in the physical world was bent and broken and no value. There was, uh, that, that if there's any salvation in the Gnostic framework, if there's any salvation, it's deliverance from the created world, deliverance from the body, not a, not a uh, deliverance in the body or deliverance of 
the body and of the material world. They, they thought the, of, the, of the body as a prison that held our soul captive. And when we die, then our spirits are set free and we can finally be who we were meant to be. So if you grow up in this culture, in this Gnostic culture, and if you grow up thinking in this Gnostic philosophy, then it's very confusing for you for why the God-man would want a a body, even a resurrected body, is still material. You could still touch it. You could still see it. Why would a spiritual man want anything to do with a physical body? And this is in their head. So, so it's much easier to deny the resurrection and to think that Jesus just went up to, as a spirit to be at the side of the Father. Well, the answer to this, why would the God-man want a physical body? Why would he want a, a resurrected body? The answer to that is biblical faith has always claimed the physical realm, the material realm, as the arena in which God works. The physical creation is man's home. It's it's where God has placed man, and it's the creation itself which is ultimately going to be redeemed and saved. We aren't saved from our bodies. We aren't saved from creation. We are saved unto a future in which our bodies and creation will be glorified. We will have resurrected bodies that live in a renewed, reclaimed creation. That is the Christian hope, ultimately. That is the hope of the gospel, that everything is going to be set in order. We're not saved from our humanity. We're saved unto a glorified humanity. Not saved from creation, but saved unto a glorified creation. But if you're, if you're growing up in this Gnostic culture and if you have these Gnostic ideas, it's very hard to accept that. So he, uh, he, he is, he's working against that. He's, he's plowing against this very uh, deep implanted idea. And so no doubt many of these Christians were still being pressured by friends and family to conform to this Gnostic dogma. But Paul reminds them of the gravity of this bad belief in verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead in general, generally speaking, no possibility of resurrection of the dead, which is a tenet of Gnosticism. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. If the resurrection isn't reality, Paul asks, then what are we doing here? What are we we doing? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if that's the case, then your preaching and your faith is useless. And on top of that, we're all liars. He puts this to them. Are you prepared to say this? Are you prepared to say that I'm a liar and your faith is in vain, that your faith is useless? Have you thought this through? The word that he uses there when he says, we have been found false witnesses, is literally, he's saying, we've been caught out. We, we've, been, we've been detected. We've been caught red-handed. In other words, if the resurrection is not a reality, in no way can it be said that the apostles are reliable, faithful, good men. If, if they've lied about this, then why would you listen to anything else they said? If, if they've lied about this, then, then how can you say, well, they've got some good advice in other parts of the scriptures? Not at all. If they have lied about the resurrection, then they have wasted everyone's time. 
Uh, Paul stakes everything on the resurrection. The whole message rises or falls with the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 16, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Here are some more things that go away. If I deny the resurrection, if there's no resurrection, then what that means is sin conquered Jesus, not the other way around. It means death conquered Jesus, not the other way around. Jesus was just like any other man then. He was nothing special if the resurrection is not a reality. And if that's the case, then we are still in our sins. We have found no way to answer the question of how we're going to find forgiveness and freedom from our sins. Also, on top of that, everyone who has died is just dead. They're lost forever. And if this is the case, then we're more miserable than anyone else. Uh, does anybody still play that game uh, Jenga anymore? Do you remember that it's got the blocks, then you build it up, and, and it's a, you know, after dinner kind of thing. It's nerve-wracking, right? It's a nice way to end the evening. And, and you pull out the blocks, and you try not to pull out the load-bearing block, the one that holds everything else up, because if you do, then the whole thing falls down, and the loser has to clean up, right? That's, that's the way it works. The resurrection for Paul is that load-bearing block, It holds everything else up. It holds everything else together. There is a kind of person in our society today, there's a kind of person in our world today who confesses to be a Christian and they want to have all the benefits, all the blocks on top, the the timeless truths of Christianity they believe, the, the idea of forgiveness, some hope of eternal life, the thought, the warm thought that their departed loved ones are okay somewhere. They, they want to have these ideas. Paul says, if you knock out that bottom block, if you knock out the resurrection, none of the rest of that can stand. There is nothing else if you knock that out. You see, Paul never shies away from logic. The, the gospel writers never shy away from logic. These historical events have real, obvious implications. If these events didn't happen, and if they didn't happen the way they said they happened, then all of the implications fall down as well. You can't have a Christianity without the historical events on which it is based. Paul is saying, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then sin hasn't been dealt with, and the world is still the same as it's, as it's always been. And if that's the case, then we are of all men most miserable. How are we more miserable than anybody else? How is that the case? I thought, you know, if I just believe this thing and if it ends up not being true, I'll I'll still be okay. That's not what Paul says. He doesn't say we're still okay. He says we're more miserable than anybody. We're more to be pitied. Why? How does that work? Well, because in the gospel, we're given hope that things are going to be okay. We're we're told that things are going to work out, that, that God is putting the world back together again. But if we find out instead that Christ is not raised from the dead, then the curtain has been pulled back for us. We've seen all the ugliness and all the horrifying wickedness of the world for what it really is. And at the same time, we see that none of this is ever going to change. See, the problem, we've we've thought that Jesus is always the answer, but with no resurrection, the, the rug is pulled out from that. There is nothing if there is no resurrection. I love the butts in Paul's writing. Anytime he comes with a but, he starts turning the gears back the other way. And and verse 20 begins with a but. Verse 20, 
But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who has put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So far in our text this morning, Paul's been knocking things out. He says, if the resurrection is not true, this isn't true, and that doesn't work, and that's not true, and this isn't true. Now he shifts gears, and now he starts going back the other way. Jesus is indeed raised from the dead, and, and here's what that means. First, he says, Jesus has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus is like that first basket of vegetables you bring in from your spring garden. You know, when, the first, when you finally get that first tomato that you can pick and that first, that first cucumber, that first squash, that first little bit that you bring in from the garden. And you think, oh yeah, we're going to have a good garden this year. It, it's the promise that the plants are alive and growing well. That's the first fruits. It's the expectation of even more fruit, more food to come. That's what Jesus' resurrection is. It's the first fruits. Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee that the rest of the harvest is on the way. He's not the last one who passes from death to life. He is only the first. It's only the beginning of a much larger resurrection. That's the first thing he says. Second, in Jesus' resurrection, there's a reversal of the Adamic curse. Every man and every woman born is born with Adam as their covenant head. And in Adam, there's no promise of life. There's only the promise of death. From Adam to Jesus, there's only death and death and more death. You read the long genealogies in the Old Testament. So-and-so begat so-and-so and he died. And he begat so-and-so and he died. 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 It's all death until you get to Jesus. But Jesus comes and he interrupts death. He stops it. He grinds the gears backwards. Every man is going to die. But if Adam is his covenant head, then he's dead. But in drawing close to Jesus, in uniting with him, we have a new covenant head, one that has the promise of life. That's the second promise is that in Jesus, we have a new head and in him we have life. Third, in Jesus' resurrection, we have the spread of life and we have the dominion of Christ over every created thing in the entire cosmos. Jesus doesn't stop winning when he defeats the grave. He goes on from there to conquer the world and he establishes his rule over time, over history, over all dominions and authorities and powers, all of it. Everything in the cosmos that would set itself against his crown is vanquished. It's all conquered and it began at the resurrection. So Paul says he must reign till he has put all of his enemies under his feet. No matter how strong the powers of earth or hell may seem, no matter how far wickedness progresses, no matter, no matter how much we might fear the wicked, 
uh, and might even fear that they'll triumph at the climax of history. It is Jesus who reigns and no one else. Jesus who reigns and who must reign as all enemies are put under his feet. Name an enemy. Name something that you're anxious about. Name someone or something that is set in opposition to Jesus and his crown. Think of it. Name it. Guess what? It loses. I don't care what you name. It loses. Every single one of them. The last enemy, the last enemy, he says, is death. And so the promise is that everyone and everything gets conquered by Jesus. That includes me. And that includes you. And that includes our children. All of it. There has never been a time in history where there wasn't a reason to worry about the future. I don't care, flip open a history book, point to a page, look at a timeline, point to a year. At every point in human history, there has been something to be worried about when it pertains to the future. Every single point in human history, never been a time. So you're worried now? You're worried about something? Well, yeah. Join, join the historical club. You, you're a human. You're worried about the future. But here's the part that we get through the resurrection of Jesus is the promise that everything falls under the rule of Jesus. He vanquishes and conquers everything. The one who conquered death and the one who conquered the grave will conquer that thing out there in your future that you fear. And I don't mean to be trite about that. I'm not, trying to be, I'm not trying to oversimplify that because sometimes the way that he conquers it is through a long and painful process of suffering. That's, that's how he does it. And so when we ask him to conquer something, we need to be prepared for a long and painful process of suffering in order for that to happen. Jesus himself went through a long and painful process of suffering. But in the end, death is conquered. And so this is the fourth thing that we receive in the resurrection of Jesus, the, the conquest of death, the expectation that one day there will be no more death, only abundant life, life and life and more life than we know what to do with. The whole section from verse 20 to 28 speaks to God's determination to put the world back into the shape it was intended to be from the start. When he commanded Adam to take dominion, he had an idea. God had an idea of what he wanted the world to be and what he wanted to look like. And through Jesus' resurrection, everything is starting to be put back under the Father, back the way it was always supposed to be. So, so he sets out to impress on the Corinthians the reality of the resurrection. He began with a historical argument that we read last week. He moved to the theological argument, which we've read so far. If there's no resurrection, there's no faith, there's no life, there's no hope. Now he's going to move to a string of practical arguments. And we'll read this last section and we'll, we'll close with this. Verse 29. We'll, we'll survey this last section and we'll close at the end of it. Verse 29. Otherwise... What will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in which, you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived." Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. The first practical implication of the denial of the resurrection, the first one he lists 
is the senselessness of, of baptism for the dead. I mean, what's the point of baptizing for the dead if the dead aren't raised? And that's all I should have to say about that, right? It's pretty straightforward. We understand what he's talking about there, right? No, <laughs> no, <laughs> they could, no. Uh, this is another difficult passage in 1 Corinthians. What is he talking about here? Um, Mormons today and other cults throughout the centuries have taken this passage and used it as a justification for proxy baptisms. That is, they are baptized on behalf of their dead relatives um, so that they can get into paradise or heaven or, or whatever their version of the afterlife is. So they're baptized on behalf of other people. But where in the whole Bible do we ever see this even referred to, much less practiced? We don't, we don't have this practice anywhere. Uh, we don't ever see it referred to. I don't, I don't have any evidence to suggest that anybody in Corinth was practicing proxy baptisms the way that various cults have understood it uh, since then. But, but even if they were, let's just suggest that e there's a 1% chance that somebody somewhere in Corinth was practicing a proxy baptism for a dead person baptized, being baptized on their behalf. Um, Paul doesn't say, why do we baptize for the dead? He says they. So he disassociates himself from this practice when he says, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized? Why then are they baptized for the dead? He's not talking about himself. This is not something, he doesn't say this is something we do. He says something they do. And that's, that's really the first clue, I think, to what he's actually talking about. He's talking about a they, a group outside the church, who is practicing something which still stands as a kind of authoritative lesson for the church. What group typically in the New Testament does things which serves as true examples for the church but are not part of the church? Who is that? Who's he talking about? Well, Israelites living under the Old Covenant have rituals and symbols which are still informative for the church. So, so what do they do? What is Israel living under the Old Covenant? What do they do that could be called baptism for the dead? Um, by the way, this word for in there doesn't necessarily, it doesn't have to mean baptism on behalf of the dead. Uh, it could mean baptism on account of the dead. It, slightly, different, slightly different meaning there. Well, well, what in the world would Israel do that could be called baptism on account of the dead? Well, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 9 he talks about the various baptisms of the Old Covenant. He talks about the ceremonial washings of the law, all the purification washings of the law. Uh, the author of Hebrews calls them all baptisms. And specifically, he mentions one of these baptisms, one of these cleansings, uh, that talks about the ashes of a heifer. You take the ashes of the heifer and you sprinkle the unclean. When do you sprinkle the ashes of the heifer? for the unclean. Well, that's in Numbers 19. You all knew that. You know where that is, right? You know where to look that up. That's in Numbers 19, where there are washings prescribed for Israelites who come into contact with a dead body. If under the law, if you come into contact with death, you are ceremonially unclean until you present yourself with a heifer at the tabernacle. And the, the, the heifer is uh, sacrificed. You take the ashes. Uh, what, what, what do you get when you mix some fat and ashes and water together? What do you get? You get soap, right? And, and so there's this sacrifice. There's this ritual. You receive the ceremonial baptism 
of, of this washing for, for this uh, coming into contact with death. If you don't do that, if, if you refuse to, Numbers 19 says, then you're cut off from the tabernacle and you're cut off from the worship and the festal life of Israel. You are outcast, you are covenantally dead. So this washing, this, this presenting yourself at the tabernacle and receiving this baptism was a resurrection. It was a, it was a symbol moving from death to life, moving from exile to fellowship. The, the opportunity to rejoin God's assembly and life among God's people, you know, just like our baptism signifies. We unite with the death uh, and resurrection of Jesus and we move from death to life. We move from exile to fellowship. So... It's possible that this is the baptism that Paul's referring to. This is the washing that Paul is, is referring to and making an argument for the necessity of the resurrection and how the resurrection, the theme of the resurrection has always been built into Israel's story. It's always been built into Israel's liturgies. Without resurrection, these ceremonial cleansings don't make sense. Without the idea of resurrection, then why do you need to do this ceremony to move from, from covenantal death to covenantal life if there's no such thing as resurrection? So if we read it again, he says, Otherwise, what will those do who are washed or are sprinkled or cleansed because of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are they cleansed because of the dead? That's, a, that's a, the, the interpretation that, that I'm... I'm, I'm trying to understand and, and get out of it. So, so the argument that he's making, the argument being, apart from the promise of the resurrection, death is not something that can be overcome, even symbolically. You can't, this, this, you evacuate all of the meaning of the Old Testament cleansings, especially this one, this baptism, the baptism for death, the washing for death, the, to be cleansed from coming into contact with death. You've evacuated all of the meaning of that if there's no resurrection. If the resurrection isn't real, why all of this empty pageantry that points to the resurrection is his argument. And um, it's possible that I'm incorrect on that, but um, I don't know of a better explanation. And this is, again, one of those difficult passages in Corinthians. It, uh, there are a few different understandings but that's one that you can get to by the scriptures alone. You don't have to try to figure out, well, what were the practices in the ancient Near East to, to get us to this point? No, you can get there by, by the scriptures, and that seems to be a consistent answer. The second practical point he makes is, if there's no resurrection, then why are we putting up with all this persecution? Why are we putting our lives at risk if all of this is a big hoax? Paul says, I'm in jeopardy every hour. Not a day goes by where I'm not at death's door. He alludes to the fact that some Christians are fighting beasts at Ephesus. The, the Romans throwing Christians uh, to the lions in the arenas uh, comes a little bit later in history. But Ephesus had this enormous 25,000 seat theater that's still intact today. And the practice of throwing Christians in the ring to fight with animals might have started there. And he alludes to it here that already there's this kind of persecution going on. Why would you go through that? Why would you submit to that? Why would you, why would you preach the gospel knowing that could happen if you knew that the resurrection was not true? Paul asks, why do we put ourselves at the risk of that kind of persecution if there's no hope of life after this? You know, that's not noble to suffer that way. It's shameful. It's pitiful. It's pitiful to suffer for something that you know is untrue. That's not heroic. It isn't admirable. It is 
pitiful. And so Paul concludes, if the dead do not rise and the resurrection is a lie, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's a little quote from Isaiah there that, that he's, he's bringing out. Uh, he's saying complete hedonistic revelry without any responsibility or worry about the consequences of your actions. That's the only sensible approach to life if there is no hope of the resurrection. If Jesus did not come bodily out of the grave, just eat and drink and sleep with whoever and soak up every offering of the world. Try everything, no matter how twisted or perverted, and do your best to destroy yourself. That is the only consistent way to live if there is no resurrection. You can't tell me that there's any honor or benefit to obeying some kind of natural law. And I'm saying in, if, if the gospel's not true and if God is not who he says he is and human societies have just developed this understanding of natural law over the centuries, you can't tell me that there's any honor to me obeying that law, that society gets along better when we all follow some rules that have just evolved in human cultures. If there is no supreme lawgiver, why do I need to follow your laws? Why do I need to do that? If there is no supreme judge, then why does it matter ultimately what I do? If there's no promise keeping God, if there's no covenant God to bless me and love me, it doesn't matter what I do. Don't tell me that the Bible just has some good universal timeless truths that we need to follow whether or not the stories are reliable. Paul says if there's no resurrection, then it's all a lie and it's all pitiful. It, all that's left for me to do is fill every passing moment of my puny passing life with as much personal pleasure as I can, with as much self-focused pleasure as possible, with no concern for anybody else. That is the only consistent way to live. Now, the noble agnostic or the, or the respectable atheist wouldn't agree with that. He wouldn't put it that way. He would say, well, we, we, we can't go that far. We we don't intend for people to really act that way. We have to have some order to have a civilization. Why? Why do you need to have order? Why do you need to have a civilization? If I'm nothing more than a literate, hairless ape, then why don't I just go ape? If it's survival of the fittest, man, free for all. Let's get at it. But of course, nobody wants that. Nobody really wants to live that way. This is why unbelief is inconsistent. It never works. It's always contradicting itself. You can't impose order on an insane, impersonal universe. If God is real, then he has introduced order and logic and law into the universe. Apart from him, there is no order. There is no nothing but insanity. And we might as all uh, might as well just get, get after the insanity. That's, that's what Paul is saying. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So Paul shocks them back to reality with the statement, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. He's borrowing that little phrase from a Greek poet who lived about 400 years before, before Paul. And what Paul is saying, and, and quoting a, a, a pagan poet is an ironic way of making this point. He says, these Christians... You, you ought to be able by now to show and tell by your life the truth of one living God. You ought to be able to reveal this God to your pagan neighbors. Instead, you're allowing your pagan neighbors to distort your theology to the point that you even deny what you ought to be gladly holding on to. And so Paul concludes with this call for them to come back to their senses. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. Sin? What are we talking about sin for? I thought we were talking about doctrines. I thought we were talking about theology. I thought we were talking about beliefs 
Why are you talking about sin all of a sudden? What does this have to do with sin? Well, all of life is interwoven. Your doctrines, your theology, your belief shapes your conduct. And unsound doctrine leads to unsound behavior. Deny the resurrection today, and it won't be long before you're sleeping with your neighbor's wife. That's the way it works. Theology, that's why theology is so critical, is because it informs our behavior. He says, some of you do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. It's not wrong to have questions. It's not, it's not wrong to think through these things critically with a clear head and work through them afresh and ask new questions. That, that's very helpful to our faith. But it is sinful to not listen when God is giving you the answers. And, and he makes it so plain and he makes it so clear and he's revealed himself so fully and, and so accurately and, and so articulately. So to try to summarize quickly, here's what Paul has laid out for us in this section. He says, if you deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus, you're still in your sins. You know all the guilt, you know all the pain and all the ugliness of sin, you know the crippling fear of judgment, but there's no salvation from it. I'm sorry, there's no escape. That's the first thing. If you deny the resurrection, there's no escape. And so the, the implication of that is there is no other hope but Jesus. There's no other God who offers to deal with our sin like Jesus does. Secondly, he says, without the resurrection, there is no comfort in suffering. There's no comfort in life. We experience pain and loss and deprivation for nothing. There's no goal to which our suffering is directed. There's no direction. There's no point. However, with the resurrection, we know that however bleak, and troubling and depressing and difficult life can be, this is not the way that the world is supposed to work. And Jesus has lashed back against the darkness and has started the gears moving back the other way. Thirdly, he says, without resurrection, death has the final say for all of us. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, that's it. When you die, there's nothing more. No eternal life, no heaven, no reincarnation, just nothingness. However, in Jesus, in his resurrection, he just shows us that death is the passageway to more life. And fourthly, he says, without the resurrection, there is no future. If death conquered Jesus, then Jesus is not going to conquer the world and lead it in the way of life and light. Things are only going to get worse until we destroy ourselves. But in the resurrection, we have the promise that Jesus conquers everything. And this is the challenge that the resurrection poses to our world. And the question that this message presents is, do you want to live in reality the reality of a world in which, which God took on human flesh, lived a life of perfect obedience, was crucified as a substitute, as an atonement for our sins, went into the grave and then conquered the grave and came out of the grave. That is reality. Do you want to live in a world where that's the reality, where God has dealt with sin and he's dealt with death? Do you want to live in that world? Or do you want to live in the fantasy world where the resurrection never happened? If the resurrection is a fact, and it is, then all its implications are all the things we want. They're the things that we need as people. And it's, it's all of the fruits of the resurrection far outweigh the acceptance and the respectability of those who want to live in this fantasy world where the resurrection didn't happen. So accept the historical reality of Jesus' resurrection and this whole cascade of blessings follow after. Forgiveness, hope, comfort, life. Accept the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Accept the gospel and never doubt it. First, because it's true. And second, because it's so indescribably better than the fantasy world. 
It's so much better. It defines our lives and gives our lives meaning and determines and gives shape to our future and to the future of the cosmos. And at the same time as I say that, we have to acknowledge the gravitational pull of the wrong kind of respectability in life, in belief, in practice. And that we test every idea. Don't, don't simply hold opinions that you just picked up somewhere that, that are the product of emotion or reaction. Don't simply hold opinions. Develop convictions about the world that God has made and the law that he has spoken into the world and the son that he has given to the world. Test every idea, every thought, every theology that you hold came from somewhere. Reject the impulse to hold things simply because they're popular. Determine that you would rather be right than liked. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word and the encouragement that your apostle gives us in these scriptures. Strengthen us, we pray, with the truth of our Lord's resurrection and his conquest of death. Continue to work this out in our lives by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.